It's Christmas! Well, tonight, thank God it's there instead of you. Oh, Christmas Day, my ass. I'm driving home for Christmas. Oh, I can't wait to see those faces. Christmas to you and all. Hello again, Merry Britsmas listeners. This is your host, Adam, the super obsessive over all things British Christmas related from TV to music to traditions. Here in the UK, the end of summer is upon us and the new school year returns shortly. For me, that means the real rundown to Christmas is truly starting. We can see it in the Christmas creepers tubs of chocolate stock popping up in shops and pubs start advertising their festive fare and party options. But we continue celebrating here on Merry Britsmas and this month I'll be talking about the second band-aid collection of superstars, how World War II affected decorations at home in the UK and a super spy Christmas special from the 60s. What do you think of when I say, The Avengers? I'm pretty sure most of you are picturing a variety of brightly costumed superheroes battling supervillains in a cinematic universe that has dominated the box office for the last decade, as well as dominating the comic book industry since the 60s. Well, we are going back to the 60s, and we are discussing the Avengers, but it's not the super heroic kind, it's a super spy kind. And the TV show actually came before the Marvel Comics team in 1963. The Avengers started in 1961 on ITV and ran for 161 episodes until 1969. It started with David Keel, played by Ian Hendry, and John Steed, played by Patrick McNee, setting out to investigate strange and spy-related crimes. By the second season, Hendry had left to pursue a film career, and McNee became the lead protagonist. Joining him was a range of temporary partners such as Dr. Kathy Gale, played by Honor Blackman, who famously appeared in Bond film Goldfinger. In series 4, Diana Rigg joined the cast as Emma Peel, and became one of the most famous secondary protagonists of the series, but even she left at the end of series 5, replaced by Linda Thorson as Tara King. The show also became more and more sci-fi through its later series, still linked to espionage but with things like robots and technology becoming more common. The show was hugely successful, airing in more than 90 countries and even getting a sequel series in the 70s that ran for two seasons. There were spin-off comics, radio series and novels, as well as a film reboot that you may remember from 1998 starring Ralph Fiennes and Uma Thurman. It didn't do that well, and it wasn't very good, being nominated for lots of Razzies. I never had much experience with the show. I've seen the rubbish film, and I did watch some odd episodes of the show when it popped up on TV years ago as a teenager, but I never really watched it properly, and I never caught the Christmas episode. It's called Too Many Christmas Trees, and it's the 13th episode of the fourth series. 
It aired on 21st of December 1965, and it begins with Steed dreaming of a wintry wonderland of snow and trees, both deliberately fake and plastic, set to some ethereal tense dream music. He finds a box of presents, opening one to reveal himself in a mirror, with a very, very creepy Father Christmas beckoning him to some stockings which turn into a murdered, mustachioed man and cue some evil Santa laughter. <laughs> the next morning, Peel drops around and Steed tells his nightmares to her. Now this is terrifying. It's always the same nightmare with variations. What kind of nightmare? A Christmas nightmare. Seasonal? I'm standing in a forest of Christmas trees and I find a present addressed to me. I open it and it is me. It's a photograph of myself. And the dream finally ends by bumping into Santa Claus and he's a particularly nasty type. And some key plot information about someone called Freddy. It's funny how Freddy came into my dream last night. Who's Freddy? Freddy Marshall. Well, it isn't surprising, I suppose. He's been on my mind a good deal lately. Oh, why? Secrets have been getting into the wrong hands. And you think he may be responsible? I'm certain he's responsible, because the secrets that have been leaking out have only been entrusted to two people, him and me. I know it isn't me. A morning newspaper announces the death of Freddy to the pair, so they set out to investigate, after he suffers another nightmare. Before they set off, Peel helps Steed open his Christmas cards, revealing his rather salubrious liaisons. Give me a hand, will you? Mm, I love opening other people's cards. <laughs> See who hasn't forgotten me this time. Ah, uh, come fly with me, Amy. Oh, chocks away, Carlotta. Yes, Carlotta. Best wishes for the future, Kathy. Mrs. Gale. Oh, how nice of her to remember me. What can she be doing in Fort Knox? Longing for you, Irma. Ooh, charming Irma. I can remember a terrible time in Monte Carlo when... Who is Boofums? I'm the postmistress at Ongar. Mm, much more of this and I shall lose my appetite. The pair head to a lavish Christmas party hosted by a publisher called Story, but the stately manner and the decor remind Steed of his latest nightmares. <sighs> It's opulent, just the thing for, for old-fashioned nightmares. I thought we came down here to forget about those. So did I. But that festive display down there was straight out of my nightmare. Oh, well, I suppose I just have to learn to live with it. My newly acquired psychic power. I say, I wonder if I'm a reincarnation of someone. Like whom, for instance? Oh, I don't know. Genghis Khan, Napoleon. How about Rasputin? Seriously, though, Steed, I mean, the Christmas decorations, how could you have known? I knew about Freddie Marshall. Two of the guests, Wade and Trasker, reveal they may have had a hand in the situation with some sort of experiments. Phase two, Jeremy. We agreed that we'd progress to phase two. It's a bit hard on this Steed fellow, isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
Rumor has it he's a pretty tough nut. Can take it. Take it? I thought you said there was nothing harmful about this. I thought you said this chap, Freddie Marshall... Died of natural causes. Complete coincidence he died just when he did. Are you sure about that? Told you. Made a thorough investigation. And then we see a top-down view of a table with three men, including Trasker and Wade from the party, staring at a picture of Steed, declaring things that he then repeats in the main room. Must sleep. Sleep. It was a long drive down here today. It was a long drive down here today. Do excuse me. Certainly. Then you are tired, Mr. Steed. I am, rather. I'll get my head down for an hour, sir, and I'll be as fresh as a daisy. Do forgive me, my dear. The dreams continue, and another woman, Crane, reveals her intention as the experimenters push things up a notch. Nearing the final phase now. That will be your responsibility, Janice. But first, have to soften him up. Soften him up? Hmm. Like a military operation, Jeremy. The last wave of shock troops before the final assault. Don't you think we're really going a bit too far? What do you propose? A party game, a small charade, <laughs> an entertainment will be suggested, a, a piece of trickery, an experiment in mind reading. It's perfect, don't you see? We'll approach Steed, get him to cooperate, actively. In front of the whole party? Well, who's to know the difference? An amusing diversion for everyone except Steed. Appropriate for the festive season, a Christmas Eve Dickens party takes place, and Mrs. Crane declares she has a party trick that shows off psychic abilities. First, may I introduce Mr. Steed, who has kindly volunteered to assist me. Mr. Steed will vouch for the fact that until a few moments ago we had never met before. Isn't that so, Mr. Steed? Absolutely, yes. Now, would you go amongst the audience, take any item you wish, concentrate on it, and I will endeavour to identify it. Will you identify this, please? A diary. Correct. And inside? A telephone number. Your telephone number, Mr. Steed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this ought to fix her. <laughs> Another object. Uh, it's square. No, rectangular. There are several. A pack of cards. That's right. Now, which particular card? Uh, one of the court cards. A queen, a queen of diamonds. And the next, a black card. You must help me. You must concentrate. But during the trick, Steed starts seeing odd things, such as the Father Christmas on a playing card, until Peel intervenes with an accident to pull him out of it. Open your mind to me. Relax. You're fighting me. Don't fight me. Relax. Open your mind to me. Relax. And Peel interrogates Wade. Hang on, I, I don't know what you mean. That was no game just now, and you know it. I... I didn't think it would go this far. An experiment, a psychic experiment, that's what they said. Who are they? I can't explain now. Later. Where? 
upstairs, hall of great expectations. But then finds him dead upstairs and tries to tell Steed who was in a strange state. Steed. Steed, Jeremy. My dear, I haven't wished you a Merry Christmas. Jeremy Wade is dead. I've got a little present for you. Did you hear what I said? Hope you like it. It isn't to write with. Oh, no. Point in the desired direction, press the little clip, and bingo! Full of tear gas. <laughs> well, that was a fine party. Jeremy wanted to tell me something about what's going on here. What's happening to you? My Christmas stocking. I must hang up my Christmas stocking. Oh, it's a delightful stocking, a splendid stocking. Good night, my dear. She uncovers the truth, but is held at gunpoint by Dr. Teasel whilst they drug Steed. I suggest you sit down, Mrs. Peel. So you're involved. I'd rather you didn't discuss that business. Rather you didn't even think about it. Oh, the grand old Duke of York. He had 10,000 men. He marched them up to the top of the hill. Peel fights back and takes out Teasel, only to find out Steed is actually in control all along, and she misinterpreted Teasel's situation. Right, get up. Wake up, you've been drugged. I haven't, you know. I poured it all down the sink. There's enough there to knock out a herd of buffalo. I tell them to get at my thoughts. I'll give you two, oh. I suspected it as soon as I saw those Christmas trees down there. Green grow the rushes, oh. What is your two, oh? So I thought I'd get into their thoughts. Two, two, the lily white boys, clothed all in green, ho, ho. It was Teasel's idea. Teasel? Security Intelligence Psychiatric Division. Where is he now, by the way? Green grow the rushes. I knocked him out. Oh. War office won't like that. But why didn't you tell me? What him? is why your three green And will you please stop singing? The pair find a hidden mirror room and take out their attackers, including one of them dressed as the creepy Santa. Is actually revealed to be Story. Brandon Story. <sighs> you mustn't cry. Oh, it's that pen you gave me. It broke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See what I mean? and the pair sum it all up on a horse and carriage ride home. Out of your mind. What? There. Oh, I'll be able to get a good night's sleep again. Sweet dreams. Come on then, giddy up, Prancer, giddy up. The episode was more sci-fi X-Files-like than I thought it would be, which was interesting. 
I like the interplay between the two leads, even though of course it was a bit dated. It reminded me of a lot of double acts in crime and supernatural shows to come. The festive feels were more abundant than I thought, with the dreams, the decorations, the creepy father Christmas, Christmas joking around between the main duo, and a Christmas Eve party with added Dickens. The antagonists were a little sparsely laid out and I felt there were too many of them for a 45 minute episode to be wrapped up, with motivations lost, especially for the host, and then rushed by or ignored altogether. But as an episode of campy Christmas sci-fi, it was a lot of fun, and I wish there were more Avengers Christmas specials to cover. Have you ever wondered why we sing and eat figgy pudding during the holidays? How does the butter letter from 11th century Rome create the perfect holiday dessert? Join me, Glenn Warren, on Seasons Eatings as we explore the history and origins of your favorite Christmas foods. So head on over to SeasonsEatingsPodcast.com to subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Each month I've been sharing stories from Christmas at War by Caroline Taggart, selecting extracts of interviews and statements from those that experienced wartime firsthand. We've looked at festive food and the blitz and the effect of rationing, but this month we're going to hear about decorating at Christmas during wartime, and how those left behind had to make do with what they had to create festive feels. Of course a lot of material was previously used to make decorations commercially disappeared from stores, but similar to today, many made their own at home and the wartime meant this became more common in most households. One particular decoration still a favourite for kids to make is the good old paper chain, as explained by Roz. The paper came in strips in different colours, pinks, blues, yellows, greens. You'd glue them into circles, link them together to make chains and drape them across the room. We did it at home and we used to do it at school too. We had a tree, I don't know where it came from, and we used these chains to decorate that as well. I remember my mother and me sitting for hours with a brush and a pot of white glue, Gloy it was called, making strips into circles and then into chains, so we had enough to go all over the room. But at school we didn't even have glue, we made a paste out of flour and water. There was no tinsel or anything shiny, it was just coloured paper. I remember clearly the first time we had the sort of fancy baubles you have nowadays, because I'd just got engaged, so I was 20 and that was a good bit after the war. Another handmade item of excitement is the brilliant and very British Christmas cracker, which Roy from Ealing remembers making. I do recall that with other youngsters in the cellar, we made some bonbons as they were called, crackers now, with odd bits of coloured paper around a cardboard tube. Handwritten silly jokes were inserted, together with any odd small items we could find. There weren't any crack strips. Anything that went bang was put to a more practical use. When pulled, we just shouted, bang! We were easily pleased in those days. Christmas cards were not sent through the post, and weren't being made anyway. This would constitute a waste of valuable time and money. However, newsagents along the road found a couple of pre-war packs, and for a laugh we gave one to each other of our regular shelter guests, captioned, Thanks for sleeping with us. Another tradition at Christmas is pulling out the old decorations you use again and again and again, which of course was very important during the war to keep those traditions and that sense of joy going as explained in the excitement in Tony's memories. We'd bring out the Christmas trimmings, decorations that were stored from year to year. We had lots of balloons, some of which had faces on, 
and you never knew what they were going to look like until you blew them up. There was one about three foot high and it had two cardboard feet linked together with a slot between. When you blew it up it turned into Father Christmas. It must have been two or three balloons in one, because it had something like a waistline. It took Dad ages to blow it up because of course he'd have to blow and then stop to take a breath, and then some of the air would come out, he'd have to blow a bit more, and there were no pumps to help him. Once the Father Christmas was blown up, you couldn't tie a knot in it because you'd never get it undone. So Dad used to have to hold the end stretched out while Mom wound lots of bits of string round it and pulled it so tight so that it didn't collapse. Then she slotted the string between the cardboard feet. Year after year, he stood in a corner, and when you went past you'd knock it and it would wobble and bounce back. Then every year Mom and Dad would let it down and pack it away for next Christmas. We had silver and gold balls to hang on the tree, and there were two that had ladies' faces. They were very realistic, they even had hair moulded into the glass. Mum and her sister used to call them Mrs Brown because when they were kids they known a lady called Mrs Brown who they said looked like these baubles. We had fairy lights that were like little globes on a wire which meant we couldn't have a lamp on because you couldn't plug the lamp and the lights at the same time. You couldn't have too many electrical appliances in those days because it would blow the system. Anyway the lights would come on, orange and yellow and green and blue, all the colours, it was very exciting. Then having established they worked, Dad would unplug them, drape them around the tree, plug them back in again and they wouldn't work because he moved them. We'd have to go along the string, tightening one bulb at a time and plugging them in again. Sometimes they'd work, sometimes they wouldn't. But when it did, it was magical. And finally, Sue, born during the war, is another who remembers decorations that must have been stored up previously, and especially remembers how Christmas trees were rarer but still a necessary part of Christmas. My grandmother had a Christmas tree, but at home we had a branch rather than a whole tree. Trees were precious then, I don't think people grew Christmas trees to sell in the way they do now. Our branch had lots of little branches coming off it, so when it was tied to a beam in the ceiling it hung down and looked like a tree. We had a real little Christmas tree candles that you had to light, and old decorations that we hung on the tree. They must have been glass because they were continually breaking, and that meant as the years went by there were fewer of them. Later on we learned to make silver stars, but at that time, when all three of us children were under six, it was just the glass things that had to be hung up carefully. Snow was bits of cotton wool, which we would throw onto the branches. At the top we had a fairy, a tiny doll about three inches long, with a white, rather yellowing skirt and wings made out of some shiny material. It certainly predated the war. Back in episode 11 I covered the original Band-Aid, who released Do They Know It's Christmas, the cheesy charity single with superstars such as Bono, Phil Collins, Boy George and George Michael that made millions for anti-famine efforts in Ethiopia in 1984. I talked about the history behind it, especially Geldof's orchestration of the whole thing, as well as a few covers of the song. But the story of Band-Aid didn't end in 1984. A few years later, in 1989, it happened all over again with Band-Aid 2.
This time, on the 1st of December 1989, Bob Geldof called Pete Waterman, one of Stock, Aitken and Waterman, a songwriting and production super trio that created massive hits for the likes of Kylie Minogue and Rick Astley, including that song which I shall not mention. Pete Waterman actually postponed his wedding, I'm unsure of what his wife thought of that, to get to work straight away, calling up artists to get involved. Two days later, Sunday the 3rd of December, recording started at PWL Studios in London. Geldof turned up of course with his wife Paulie Yates and their six-year-old daughter Fifi, who was excited to meet Jason Donovan. The song itself was the same as the original, but with new artists, as explained by Geldof in a report for Going Live, a kids TV show. There have been a lot of people on to be going on about um, you know, re-releasing the Band Aid record. I thought um, it had sort of served its purpose. Um, the only way that it could be valid at all would be to make it contemporary for a new generation. The problem is the same, the song is the same, it's the same time of year. Um, the only thing that's changed perhaps is that the faces in English pop music have changed. Philip Schofield interviewed artists for the show, such as Jason Donovan talking about the experience. How are you? How are you feeling now? I and mean, have you done your bit? Yep. Right. You've yep. done your bit. Are you yep. happy with it? Yeah, I am. I, it's. I mean, obviously, we're doing it very quickly, um, and there's a reason behind that. Well, I mean, that's the way the guys sort of work anyway. But uh, um, it sounds great. It must I mean, be. It really I mean, sounds amazing. This is a bit a bit odd to, to rush in and do something quickly rather than you know being able to Bare spend time. a bit of time thinking about it. Yeah. Although, I mean, that's sort of the way the guys work anyway. So in that sort of sense, I'm quite used to it. I think what's probably weird for me is that like in 1984, I was at school when um, that record was out, and I sort of felt quite a buzz, you know, and the, the whole Live Aid, the Band Aid sort of thing was was really quite inspiring. Mm -hmm. And then to suddenly come back in 1989 and to actually someone said to me would you like to be on it and you go wow you know exciting marty pello of wet 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 used the interview to make a strong political opinion which i agree with to this day it's not getting too heavy and too topical it shouldn't be us it should be doing it, it should be a government that should Absolutely. become more involved in it and if it takes pop stars to give them for them to start to understand to have a conscious thing great I said this before, it's like, it's like the motives, you know, I think, that, that speak volumes and all you're trying to do is make people aware of the problem. I mean, I don't think you can change the world, you know, but I think you can probably make people aware and just take it for what it is. However, the artists involved don't seem to have the lasting mega superstar power of some of the earlier Band-Aid. Compared to the likes of George, Michael, Bono and Sting, the top artists on Band-Aid 2 were probably Jason Donovan, Cliff Richard and Kylie Minogue. They're pretty well known. But perhaps Kylie aside, seemed to lack that real star power of the first. Other artists on the record included girl group Bananarama, the only act to take part in the first one as well, Lisa Stansfield, the Pasadenas, Sonia, and Bross, whose recent documentary After the Screaming Stops is a must-watch if you haven't seen it. There also seems to be more artists who I don't think would be remembered internationally, such as Big Fun, Kathy Dennis, D-Mob, and Glenn Goldsmith. Also involved singing and playing guitar was another Christmas star in Chris Rea, singer of the classic Driving Home for Christmas. The music production seems a lot more 80s, with electronic sounds and tones used. It doesn't get played nearly as much as the original, and I can see why it's not as strong as the original, but there are some nice moments, such as the Pasadena singing and Kylie and Jason sharing lines. It wasn't quite a phenomenon in the way of the original, but it was still a success in the charts though spending three weeks at number one and being the ninth biggest single of the year.
As always, let's close this section with some covers. First up is those chirpy, supposed teenagers in Glee, the hugely successful TV show where covers of every song seem to appear. And they performed this one in Extraordinary Merry Christmas in Season 3. At Christmas time, we let him light and we banish shade. You should have heard of Slade if you're a proper British Christmas fan. The Glam Rockers released the brilliant Merry Christmas Everybody in 73 and had a string of other hits in the UK charts, but they also recorded a version of this charity hit for a festive album called Crackers in And to end on something completely different, with Richard Cheese, a comedic artist who takes songs and turns them into lounge or swing star tracks, as with this on Silent Nightclub in 2006. And in our world of plenty, we can spread a smile of joy. Throw your arms around the world at Christmas time. But say a prayer, pray for the other ones. At Christmas time, it is hard. But when you're having fun, there's a world outside your window, and it's a world of dread and fear, where the only water flowing is the bitter sting of tears, and the Christmas bells that ring there, they're the clanging chimes of doom. Well, tonight, thank God it's them instead of foo. Feed the world. Man, that's high. Forget it. No, I'm not. I can't sing that part. No. Someone else sing that part. All right. Merry Christmas, everybody. Let them know it's... You know the rest. Thank you. Call my doctor. And that's it for my August episode. We head into the Burr months with gusto. Please get in touch via Merry Britsmas on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Are you having strange psychic dreams of creepy Father Christmas? Do you think Band-Aid 2 was much better than the first one? And that Bross beats Bono any day? Well, let me know and get in touch. And happy blooming Christmas to you and all.